All right, good morning, everybody. So today is the uh, 15th anniversary of 9-11. Uh, last night we did a concert here, and uh, some of you, how many of you attended the concert last night? Okay, a lot of young people here. We had, uh, man, it was, a, it was a full house, and it was a great evening. And uh, when I brought up 9-11, I realized that a lot of the kids that were, that were here last night, I probably shouldn't call them kids, but... Um, they were probably babies at the time. They were probably, some of them were five and under, and, uh, you know, they heard stuff about that particular morning, but they may not have experienced, the way that, experienced it the way that a lot of us did. I remember where I was. I was at a Bible study um, with a group of guys, and uh, we just were kind of taking a peek. They had the TV on, and uh, we, were, we were doing the Bible study, and we saw the smoke from the tower, and we're like, what in the world's going on? And then as it, you know, as the news reports were coming, there was uh, clarity on what was going on. That was incredibly 15 years ago uh, that that happened. And uh, I was pastoring at the time uh, in the city and uh, was a fairly new senior pastor in the city. And it was amazing to me to see what happened in the aftermath of 9-11 because I saw more people at prayer meetings than I had ever seen before. You know, we used to have, we'd have prayer meetings and there would be, you know, maybe five to ten people there. All of a sudden we had 40 and 50 people at the prayer meetings and people were crying out for the nation. They were crying out, you know, in repentance, crying out and asking God, what message do you have for us? What are you saying to America? And remember that America responded, I think, in a great way. I mean, people were talking about we're going to stand together, we're never going to forget, but you guys all know how we are, right? And it doesn't take long. In fact, it was a matter of weeks, maybe a couple of months until church attendance went back the way it was and everybody just kind of went on with their lives because that's kind of how we are. So here we are 15 years later. I was looking at statistics recently and, uh, you know, you can get some different stats from different polls, but what the main uh, stats that I'm seeing is church attendance in America is on the decline um, there are many people who are not interested in going to church anymore, questioning the God of the Bible. And so here we are, 15 years later, and uh, we're at a crossroads. We have an important election coming up, and our country, how would you define our country right now? Confused, divided, frustrated. Many people are angry. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot going on, and here we are, 15 years later. There's a picture of the tower, and with all that I could say about, you know, you know the things that maybe we'd want to pick apart and decry and talk about the negative, I want to tell you a story about something that happened 15 years ago. Of the many stories that I could share with you, this is about a 24-year-old equities trader. Uh, just a few minutes after United Airlines Flight 175 struck the South Tower of the World Trade Center, 24-year-old Wells Crowther called his mother and calmly left a voicemail. He said, Mom, this is Wells, and I want you to know that I'm okay. Crowther was an equities trader at Sandler, O'Neill, and Partners on the 104th floor. But after that call that he made to his mom, the man who was a volunteer firefighter in his teens made his way down to the 78th floor sky lobby and became a hero to strangers known only as the man in the red bandana. The report goes this way. Amid the smoke, chaos, and debris, Crowther helped injured and disoriented office workers to safety, risking his own life in the process. Though they couldn't see much through the haze, uh, those he saved recalled a tall figure wearing a red bandana to shield his lungs and his mouth. He had come down to the 78th, uh, 78th floor sky lobby, an alcove in the building with express elevators meant to speed up trips to the ground floor. In what's been described as a strong, authoritative voice, Crowther directed survivors to the stairway and encouraged them to help others while he carried an injured woman on his back. After bringing her 15 floors down to safety, he made his way back up to help others. Everyone who could stand, stand now, Crowther told survivors while directing them to a stairway exit. If you can help others, do so. 
He's definitely my guardian angel, no ifs, ands, or buts, because without him, we would be sitting there waiting until the building came down, survivor Ling Young told CNN. Crowther is credited with saving at least a dozen people that day. Crowther's body was later recovered alongside firefighters in a stairwell, heading back up the tower with the Jaws of Life rescue tool to go and try to save more people. The man with the red bandana, that's all that they really remember about this 24-year-old young man who gave his life for others. When you think about what Crowther did, I bet you that uh, the people that he rescued that day, he probably didn't even know them. He probably didn't have close relationships with those people. And Jesus said, you know, there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for what? His friends. But Crowther probably didn't lay down his life for his friends. And that's difficult to do. You know, for a good man, some people would dare to die, right? Some people, if, if you knew that person was a good person or if you really love that person, you might take that bullet. You might run into that burning building. But Jesus, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet in rebellion to God, the man with the red crown, the, the crown of thorns that he bled probably onto, that's the man, the God-man that laid down his life for us. As we go into this sermon this morning, we're going to talk about what it means to be the greatest. And our definitions of greatness are not biblical to a large extent. We hold up people who make a lot of money, people who maybe act or sing well, people who are good athletes. But I'm not sure that our heroism is placed in the right place anymore. See, the ultimate hero is Jesus Christ. And he's trying to get us to understand what it means to be great. And I'm still a work in progress, too. I want to confess it before all of you. Still trying to figure out, you know, that humility is actually greatness in the kingdom of God. And all it's really an upside-down message to the world. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, talk about the greatest and what you say, Jesus, about true greatness, I pray that you'd bless our time, open our hearts, give us ears to hear, and a heart to be conformed more into your image. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're in Mark 9. If you'd take your Bible or if you're on a device, Mark 9, verse 33. We'll look at 33 through 41. We'll talk about the greatest. Jesus has been telling the apostles, and they're a bit shocked and confused, that he's going to Jerusalem, that he's going to be mocked, he's going to be spit upon, he's going to be scourged, and he's going to be crucified. And three days later, he's going to rise from the dead and when the Gospels talk about the response of the apostles, there's a couple different responses. One is Peter's response where he rebukes the Lord and says, this is never going to happen to you. One of the responses was confusion. They just didn't quite understand because it didn't fit with their theological uh, um, predispositions. They, they thought the Messiah when he came, and now they're excited to know that he he seemed to be the Messiah. They were figuring that out. They thought he was going to take the throne. So they started thinking about their own personal uh, positions. This is cool. We're, I'm one of the 12. Can you imagine? Uh, the Messiah is here. The long-awaited hero of Israel is here. And I get to be one of the inner circle. And especially Peter, James, and John. They had just gone up to the Mount of Transfiguration. The other nine had stayed down. They were part of the inner circle. They get, got to see Moses and Elijah. They got to hear the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They had to be feeling pretty good. But then again, as they go down the mountain, he tells them again, I'm going to die. And one of the Gospels say, say that they were fearful. And another Gospel says they were grieved. I don't think they knew how to process it. I don't think that they could quite figure out what to do. And it even says they were afraid to ask him about it. But they weren't too afraid to argue about which one was going to be the greatest. They were certainly afraid to ask him about his death and what he was talking about in his resurrection. And they were caught up in a, what a lot of us are caught up in, which one writer uh, commenting on the book of Isaiah called self-salvation. All of us uh, as Americans, whether we want to confess it or not, we're pretty big into self-reliance. We celebrate self-reliance. And, and in some ways, self-reliance is a, certainly a good thing. To work hard, to make your way, nothing wrong with that. But if we try to do life, and especially spiritual life, without God, we are in deep trouble. 
And today, as I look at America, as I look at the landscape, I'm not sure America really knows what we want to rely upon, or more specifically, who we want to rely upon. And here we are at a major crossroads. And if you look at the pattern that God used with Israel, and I'm not going to tell you that I know all the angles here, but I'll tell you this, what God did when Israel ignored him and became self-reliant and imbibed or embraced the, the deities or the idols of their time, God said, okay, if that's what you want, then you call out to them in your next emergency. And you see how well they do for you. You know, this is a biblical pattern. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know all the angles on how God works in every situation, but I'll tell you there is a pattern. And the pattern often that God uses is to say, okay, I'll leave you to your own devices. If you want to trust in that thing instead of me, good luck. And then time and time again, what Israel did is start to cry out to God. They realized they had sinned and God was faithful. Time and again, the Psalms tell us to draw, uh, well, to, to be faithful to Israel, to rescue them and then draw them back to himself. Self-reliance was the root of the problem at the bottom of the Mount of Transfiguration where the powerless nine, Peter, James, and John were up on the mountain, but the powerless nine could not deliver a demon-possessed boy with this desperate dad, you remember? I brought him to your apostles and they could not deliver my son. Please help me. And Jesus said, oh, faithless generation. And I asked the question last Sunday. I wonder what he would say to our generation today. He said, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I put up with you? Bring the kid to me. And Jesus, with a heart of compassion, asked the dad, how long has this been happening since he was a kid? The thing, this terrible uh, unseen force throws him into open fires, into bodies of water. He, 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 you know, he's probably disfigured. Please help me. And Jesus said, all things are possible to him who believes. And the dad said, I believe but help my unbelief. And we parked there last Sunday and we said, you know what, that's a very authentic, honest statement. And I told you guys, I've, I've prayed that way more times than I could count. <laughs> I believe, but help my unbelief. And so Jesus rescued the boy. That exchange is in Mark 9.24 where the the dad says, help my unbelief, and Jesus rescues the boy. The demon makes a last-ditch effort to, to try to hold the boy or destroy him, and Jesus says, don't enter him again. And the Gospel of Luke says that he gave the boy back to his father. That's how we ended last Sunday. And I told you the application for us in our day and age is that Jesus Christ raises people from the dead spiritually and gives them back to his father. And that is the story of salvation. And so now we have the aftermath of that scene as we pick up the text in Mark 9:33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he, Jesus, was in the house, he began to question them, and he said, what were you discussing on the way? So they had left the Mount of Transfiguration. They had left this incredible deliverance of this uh, a demon-possessed boy, and remember, one of the things that they had said to Jesus in the aftermath is, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus said, this kind, pay attention to that, Bible students, because that tells you there's different kinds of demonic spirits with different power. This kind only comes out through what? Prayer, which told me they didn't pray, and some versions say prayer and fasting. So I'm sure that should have gotten their attention, like, okay, apparently you guys didn't pray, you didn't think of that, <laughs> but then how many times have we been in situations where we look back, we've been in a crisis, and we haven't even prayed? I do that sometimes when I'm halfway through a meal. Oh, this is good. Hey, anybody pray around here? <laughs> well, well, no. I couldn't wait. <laughs> and that should have struck them. This kind only comes out through prayer. Hello? But on they went on their journey, and they started dialoguing as they walked. 
And with all of that backdrop and all that's happened to them and the deep penetrating questions that they should have been asking, you know what they talked about on the way? Oh, they argued about which one of them was the great. <laughs> but that's how human they were, which gives me hope. That's how real the Bible is. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. And look, if I would have made up the story, let's say that the, the critical skeptics are right and the Bible is a cooked up story and maybe Peter, James, and John got together and, and said, hey, this is a way to be famous, man. This is going to be cool. I would not have written the story this way. I would have made myself look good. Uh, like I always believe. Yeah, those other poor people over there. But that shows you how real the Bible is, how authentic the Bible is. Paul said, when he came into Corinth, says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Lloyd Ogilvy comments, he said, I have learned this repeatedly in my own life. When my strength is depleted, when my rhetoric is unpolished by human talent, when I'm weary, the Lord has a much better tool for empathetic, sensitive communication. The barriers are down. When I know I can do nothing by myself, my poverty becomes a channel for His power. More than that, often when I feel I have been least efficient, people have been helped most effectively. It's taken me a long time to learn that the lower my resistances are and the less self-consciousness I am, the more the Word of God can come through me. You know, in the upside-down kingdom, the truth of the matter is when I'm weak, then I am strong. You say, that makes no sense to me, Pastor Michael, until you realize that when you're weak, you become reliant upon the power of God because you don't have the goods and when you become more reliant upon God, God's power flows more freely because then you're not doing it in your flesh. Then you're not doing it in yourself. And when you feel a little uneasy about a situation, whether it's a witnessing opportunity or something that God has called you to do, and you feel weak, you're probably right where you need to be. And that does not make me feel comfortable. I like being confident. I like being strong. I like being prepared. I like knowing what to expect. These are things I like. Did you hear how many times I said, I like it? I like that. Lord, just in case you didn't hear that, this is what I like. That's a lot of Christian philosophy today, right? This is what I like, Lord. And the Lord says, yeah, but let me show you what I'm like. Moses Lord, just in case you didn't know, I'm not real good at talking. And God says, well, who made the mouth? <laughs> Jeremiah, I'm too young. Gideon, my family's the least. And God says, good, that's why I appeared here. You know, I had options. <laughs> I could have made another bush on fire in another location. But Moses, I've chosen you. Oh. Hey, Gideon, just in case you didn't realize, I knew you were threshing in private, hiding from the terrible calamities and fears of your time. I know things. I'm God. Oh. We're going through the book of Exodus uh, on Thursday mornings, and we were looking at Pharaoh, and when Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's got that stubborn heart, and everybody asks theologically, did God harden his heart? Did he harden his heart? I think it was a little bit of both. But this is Exodus 7.14. Listen to these words. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. You look at the Hebrew word for stubborn of Pharaoh's heart. It's kabed, K-A-B-E-D. It means his heart was heavy or grievous or burdened. The, the way to take the Hebrew about Pharaoh's heart, everybody get this, is that his heart was so heavy with other stuff, he had no room to be open to God. 
And do you know that in Mark 6.52, a verse that we studied three chapters ago, it said that the disciples' hearts were what? Hard. And it's kind of the same idea. That's a Greek word, but it has the idea of calloused. It has the idea of other things weighing down the heart. And in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel the prophet speaking for the Lord says, those people in Israel have put their idols right in their hearts. And when you put idols in your hearts, you push out the spirit. Everybody hearing what I'm saying? When you take in idols of the culture, which are uh, often about self-reliance, you push away the spirit of God. And so God's constantly working on our hearts, constantly trying to show us what's going on in our hearts. This is Psalm 19. Hold your place in Mark. Go to Psalm 19. David talks about the creation constantly bombarding the world that there's a God. Day and night, it pours forth its, it pours forth its speech, Psalm 19. That there's a God. Day and night, mankind is bombarded just by the physical creation alone. And then he goes from the wor- world that God made, which is a witness, to the word of God, the law of the Lord. So you could break it down in verses 7 through 11. He talks about the word of God, the world that God made, verses 1 through 6, Psalm 19, if you want to break it down. Verses 7 through 11 are the word of God, the world and the word. And then here's how David responds. This is Psalm 19, verse 12. And this is a rare occasion, but I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because I want to tell you, they've done a great job in in showing what this means. So here's how it reads. It says, how can I know, verse 12, Psalm 19, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant, Psalm 19, 13, from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Go back to the Gospel of Mark. Lord, who who can know the sins that lurk in his heart? Well, the way you know is you let the Word of God read you instead of you just reading the Word. Amen? You let it read you. When you come into a sermon or a Bible study, come with an open heart and just say, Lord, I'm here because I want to hear from you. I know you have a word for me. And so they came to Capernaum, Mark 9:33, the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. He was in the house. They traveled a ways, and he began to question them, and he said, well, what were you guys talking about on the way? One writer said, one of our biggest battles and biggest idols is personal prosperity, We may not always see this as an idol, but that is precisely what it is, especially when it is our sole priority. And the essence of idolatry is that which weighs down the heart and crowds out God. They weren't pondering the glory of Jesus and the power of Jesus. They were pondering their own position. And Jesus got in their kitchen. Have you ever noticed that Jesus asked penetrating questions? Have you ever noticed that sometimes when you're reading your Bible, You say something like this, it's not amen, it's ouch. (laughs) Oh Lord, that's not what I wanted to hear. And then the Lord says, yeah, but that's what you needed to hear. Because I'm not in the business of band-aids. That's not God's business. Everybody realizing that? He's in the business of looking at our hearts and the problem, the root, of course, we, we know what's going on here. The problem is pride. Pride basically says, I'm for me. Pride is always causing conflict because it insists on being the center of attention. Pride goes before, what? Destruction or a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. A haughty spirit before stumbling. It says, it's better to be of humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. R. Kent Hughes says, what a chill their conversation and mindset must have brought to our Lord's burdened soul. They had been with him almost three years, and now he was facing the ultimate humiliation of all time, and they were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. I wonder how many times in the ensuing years when he was now gone back into heaven that they looked back and whispered a silent prayer. Lord, I'm sorry. 
because they had three years with him, but then they had a lifetime to live. I wonder how many times they reflected in the night before they went to bed and thought back to conversations and things that they were so slow of heart to believe and learn. I've done it many times, even at the end of a day. <laughs> Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I let my flesh get the best of me in this situation. So Jesus drilled them. He said, hey, what were you guys talking about? Kind of stuck his head in. And they, Mark 9.34, the great apostles, which one is going to be the greatest? They kept, what? Silent. <laughs> you ever had one of those moments where you're having a conversation with somebody and it wasn't going on the most godly lines and somebody stuck their head in and said, hey, what are you guys talking about over here? And you're like, Silence typically means, just in case you needed clarification this morning, you got caught. Uh-oh. Right? You ever had, been having a conversation and the person that stuck their head in was the person that you were talking about in not-so-Christian, godly ways? And they show up, it looks like it was just their head floating into your conversation. You're like, how did you get here? How did you know? What are you guys talking about? <laughs> oh, nothing. They kept silent, for on the way, 34, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. The Greek word for greatest is a word which means, speaks of levels of importance. Luke 9.46 tells us this was an argument they were having. They were actually arguing about it, which one of them might be the greatest. And this speaks of prestige and power. Just so you know, in that culture, they spent a lot of time talking about levels of importance. So we, we need to go back to the Jewish mind a little bit and understand this was pretty big for them. They, they liked to sit at tables and talk about levels of importance. So it was kind of part and parcel with who they were. And when Jesus came into the earth, he was doing the exact opposite. He was showing them that the greatest among them should be servant of all. Turn to the book of Proverbs, if you would. Proverbs 30. Proverbs is all about wisdom, right? How to live out a wise life. Proverbs right after the Psalms. This is Proverbs chapter 30. We studied this at our Friday morning Bible study this last week. And here's what it says. Proverbs 30, verse 29. 30, 29. I have in my notes... And when they came from the, down from the mountain, they should have been saying, I want to be more like Jesus. But instead they were arguing about, everybody should be more like me. All right, so here it is, Proverbs 30, verse 29. There are three things which are stately in their march, even four which are stately when they walk. The New Living Translation says, there are three things that walk in a stately stride, no four that strut about. The lion which is mighty among beasts and does not retreat before any, just put in your margin, except for the cowardly lion. Right? The strutting cock, the male goat also, and a king when his army is with him. 32. If you've been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you've plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth. Think of the apostles, right? <laughs> what are you guys talking about? Oh. I hear no evil. I see no evil. I speak of no evil. <laughs> I'm not saying it. Put your hand on your mouth. Remember when Job was questioning God? Why are you doing this to me? What's going on here? Poor counselors. Even my wife says, curse God and die. <laughs> Thanks, honey. You know when the wife says that to you, you're in deep trouble. Minimally, you need counseling, right? Why do you keep calling out to him? Just curse him and die. You're a mess. Thanks, sweetie. But then at, but then at the end of the book of Job, he says, everybody, I'm not going to talk anymore. See, I used to hear about you, but now I've seen you. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. For the churning of milk produces butter, 
Proverbs 9.33. The pressing of the nose brings forth blood, especially among siblings. I added that. So, <laughs> the churning of anger produces strife. If I can add, pride will bring you low. We were talking in the Bible, so we were saying, well, is, is he talking about positive or negative things? The, the lion, he didn't back down. The king, got your army behind you, you're feeling pretty good. But it seems like the flow of the context is saying, look, if you walk around and you're strutting around and you're prideful, Pastor John, even at the Bible story, or afterwards, he did a, a cock when it, a rooster when it walks around all proud. <laughs> Ask him to do it later. He does it incredibly. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you're down. You're like, what happened? I don't know. You were just strutting around a minute ago. <laughs> anyway, turn back to Mark. This is a dangerous attitude that the church must resist, and we all need to remember that Jesus is talking to the early church. This is the foundation of it all. These are the guys that will set the attitude, the mindset. They will be the spiritual leaders of the church. Pretty important that they get it. And so he sat down, look at verse 35, Mark 9. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. This is God's way. This is what is important to God. Anybody who wants to be first, he should be last of all and servant of all. If you're going to make a grand entrance, if I can put it that way, into the kingdom of God, you must be a servant because not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to what? serve and give his life as a ransom for many you call me great you call me lord that's what i am if i washed your feet you ought to what wash one another's feet i've left you an example that you should follow jesus did things that were shocking to these guys and so he says look you want to be great start serving each other can you imagine the looks that must have gone around that table i'm not serving him sir you ever been there before? There's a problem somewhere in the church. There's a spill. A toilet's backed up. Word comes to you. Who do we got to, to help out with toilets that have problems like that around here? You must have somebody. Isn't there a backed up toilet ministry? That's when we get the note, the anonymous note. Hey, I think it'd be a good idea if around here you guys would come up with a ministry. <laughs> you guys, can you figure this out? I'm not signing this, but <laughs> I want you to know I'm concerned. Thank you. I'm sorry, but... So he took a child, 36, the word in Aramaic for child can also mean servant, but it, it appears to be a small child. In fact, uh, many commentators believe that it's one of Peter's children, and they're probably in Peter's house. He took a child, he set him before them, and he took the child, taking the child in his arms. Gotta love Jesus. Probably a little, perhaps a little toddler, and he took the little child in his arms. I just want to park here just to let you know that Jesus thought children were really important. In fact, he thought that they were probably the best picture of what we're supposed to be like. C.S. Lewis said we should have grown-up heads but a child's heart. Yes, we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it includes our mind, but Jesus said unless you are converted and become like little children, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. That's an easy verse to brush by, but we should probably listen to it. And what he's talking about is a heart of trust. Little children, you know, you know, we talk about the example here is no pretension, just trust. And he's holding this child. He's embraced this child. He calls this child as a living parable, a living illustration. He wants them to get the point that this is not about pride, this is about them becoming soft. 
And he says in Matthew's account in Matthew 18, 4, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verse 4. The verb behind humbles is a word which literally means to make low in God's eyes. Listen to this. This is the Hebrew picture language. The word sin means the fence that strongly surrounds or the fence of the snake's strength. Sin in the Hebrew picture language becomes its own prison that keeps you from freedom and from doing what is right. Picture someone with the word sin building a wall or a fence around themselves, putting each brick like a mason would, brick by brick until they've built their own prison. Here's the picture in the dictionary I have in my office. It shows a man and every time he sins, he builds this wall that's starting to go higher and circle around him until his own sin has become his prison. That's the word in Hebrew. But here is how this is dealt with. The word humility in the Hebrew picture language means to destroy the wall. The word speaks of a f- person flat on their face in humility. When the wall around a city is knocked down, when all defenses are gone, there is humility. The walls come down, the walls of sin and pride, only when there is what? Humility. Is your marriage in trouble? Friendships? Your own service to God? Are you hurt? Frustrated? You might want to start by getting low. Because when you get low, it's then you can see everything looking up. But when you are up, you're looking what? Down on everybody else. This is the picture of the scriptures. Jesus Christ was highly exalted by God and he's given the name which is above every name because in Philippians 2 it says that he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even what? Death on the cross. And these words in Hebrew tie to the Messiah specifically. They speak of him being the humblest of all. And he says, whoever, 37, receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. You know, see, when you're arguing about your position before others, it means that you've got to put them down here so you can be up here, right? I mean, we hear the stories of corporate America that in order to climb the corporate ladder, I mean, you've got to leave other people behind. And it's kind of like, oops, too bad. And we've all heard the stories of people who lie about co-workers and make co-workers look bad and are talking behind their back. Why? So that they can become another step to, for me to get higher. And God's saying, no, 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 no. You want to be my people? Open your heart. You see, this is not just about this child. This is about them loving each other. Because their witness to the world is going to be People will know that you are my disciples if you, who's he talking to? He's in the upper room the night before he dies, John 13, 34 and 35, and he says, this is how people will know that you belong to me, that you, the 12, belong to me. Oh yeah, it carries out to us. But this is how people will know that you are my disciples. Do you know that on the night of the Last Supper, they were still arguing about who was the greatest The night before he's going to die, they haven't stopped. And Jesus said, this is how the world's going to know. Not when you're arguing, but when you, Peter, wash John's feet. When you, James, wash somebody else's feet. You see, this is very much directed at them. The Talmud regarded spending time with children to be a waste of time. One rabbi wrote, Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tearing in places where men of the common people assemble, destroy a man. You know, there are times when I'd like to just spend the week with little kids. Because I tell you what, they're much more, they're easier to deal with than adults. Amen? Sunday school teachers, please hear this. 
because I know it gets exhausting at times. I know you wonder if they're listening to you. I teach a class of fourth through sixth graders at a local elementary school, and sometimes they exhaust me. Pastor Michael, Pastor Michael, Pastor Michael, look at this. So one day, I'm up there teaching, and I said in a moment of exhaustion, do any of you read your Bibles during the week? <laughs> and one of the little boys says to me, he's the, I can barely keep him in his seat. He just circles the classroom. So I, I have to have, he, you know, he beca- I've been told you, you let them help. That's how you redeem it, right? So he passes out the papers. They can't sit still. And I said, do you read your Bible? No, I play video games. <laughs> no hesitation whatsoever. Nope. Only, only read it when I'm here with you. <laughs> Honest, right? Do you go to church? Nope. But I, I read my Bible when I'm here with you. Oh. I said, well, why do you come here then? Get this, he says, because I like to see you. Wow. I never hear that, so that's... <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> 38. <laughs> John, uh, so John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. I, I was going to say something about Sunday school teachers that, you know, I think the stats say that most people make a commitment Uh, to Christ before the age of 17. Now, that's not everybody. Some of you came to faith later in life. I came to faith in my early 20s. But we reach a lot of our generation at a very young age. And so, don't underestimate the importance of pouring into children. Their hearts are probably the most open. They don't have... You don't have to convince them with all the incredible arguments about the cosmos and the, the intricate design of the universe. They just, they already know there's a God. So he said, well, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we, we tried to hinder him because he was not, what? He wasn't following us. Hey, there's, there's some, hey, Lord. Now, there's two ways to take this. One is that John John, the beloved apostle. John, by the way, is called the apostle of love. One of the two brothers, the sons of thunder, as Jesus <laughs> named them. The, one, the two brothers who said, hey, let's just burn that village, Lord. What do you think? Those people wouldn't listen. <laughs> and Jesus was like, calm down. <laughs> now, that apostle becomes the apostle of love. He talked a lot about love. Now, there's two ways to take this. One is that John absolutely didn't hear a word that was spoken to him, and he's saying, look, there's a dude going around. He printed business cards. He's not one of us. He's using your name. Or another way to take it is that John went, ouch, Lord, there was just a guy doing some good stuff in your name, and we told him, don't do that anymore. You're not one of us. Maybe John was feeling some conviction. And Jesus said, don't hinder him, for there is no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. I have a question about that verse because I think of Judas Iscariot in Matthew 7 where people are going to come and say, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? But I think this is a general statement. For he who is not against us is what? Is for us. And Jesus gave the reverse in Matthew's gospel. He who is not with me is against me and so he ends up this particular section with these words for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as a follower or followers of christ truly i say to you he shall not lose his reward jesus has been talking about the greatest and now he's talking about accepting one another and loving each other And Jesus says, if you go somewhere and someone is even willing to give you some water in my name, they're going to be rewarded. Because as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, Matthew 25, you did it to me. Do you know that every time you do something good in Christ's name, 
he credits that to your account. In fact, he says, when you did it to the least of these, which could imply a child or someone who can't pay you back, you did that for me. Every time you've done something kind and benevolent to someone in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus said, you did it for me. And every time someone persecutes the church, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Do you know, Jesus is much more intimately involved in the life of his people than we tend to think. He takes all of this personally. On this note, he really cares how we treat each other, how we love each other, how we talk about each other, how we pray for each other. And he says, when you guys figure this out, my inner circle, when you guys get that I'm not here to destroy people's lives, I'm here to save. And when you start treating each other the way I have come into the world to demonstrate God's love, well, you won't lose your reward, even if you offered a cup of water in my name. Sometimes when we go through our week as we wind down here, we assess who deserves our time, right? I mean, we do it whether we are conscious about it or not. Like, well, I don't know. And sometimes we, we determine that by how someone looks or what they can offer us back. And Jesus says, no, that's not my kingdom. If you start serving, if you start ministering in my name, even a cup of water, even if you gave somebody a water bottle in his name, Jesus says you're going to be rewarded for that. Let's bow. Father God, as we think about this great principle, we think about scriptures, Mark's theme verse, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We think about Luke 19 in the story of Zacchaeus, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We think of John 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And when we measure our Christian walks, Father, by those verses, those standards, Man, it simplifies everything. There's an old chorus that says, Make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my heart always be, Lord, make me a servant. Make me a servant today. Lord, I, I really believe that starts when you have our heart. And Lord, as we look at the apostles, they, they're so near to home, but you are so patient. Even the way you dealt with them around this table shows your patience. You, you showed them a child. You said, take a look. Stop the pretension and follow me. Lord, thank you that we're in a process of sanctification and it's going to take a while in fact, it's going to take a lifetime to figure out all these things, but man, if we, if we err on the side of letting all that we do be done in love this week, if we put others before ourselves, I think most of the other stuff would fall into place. You said to love you with all of our heart, all that we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the greatest. These are the greatest commandments of the law. This is the essence of it. And when we do it, Lord, it really simplifies everything. There's, we're not going to covet. We're not going to steal our neighbor's stuff when we're doing these simple things. So this is a living example of what the people of God are called to be. And as we think back of the story of what happened in the tower with this young man giving his life for people he didn't even know, we immediately can't help but think of our great God and Savior who came down to rescue us and died on the cross while we were yet enemies and sinners. And Lord, we look afresh to that cross and realize that's the symbol of much of what we do to take up our cross and follow you, to die to self so that others might be encouraged. Lord, as we pray Psalm 19 together, 
Who can discern his hidden faults, the sins that lurk in our heart? Lord, cleanse me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Lord, our, our hearts are before you right now. We want to love our families better. We want to love this world better. We want to have those opportunities that that brings to testify to what's happened to us in Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian this morning with your head and heart bowed, you've not made that first commitment, or maybe you need to rededicate your life to Jesus right now, come as a child to say, Lord, I believe you died on the cross. Pray it right now to him. I believe you died on the cross for me. Thank you. Thank you that you took my punishment. You humbled yourself. You were alone. You were, I'm sure, embarrassed and ashamed at the cross. You, you despise the shame, yet you did it for me. I trust in you. I turn from my ways, my idols, my pride, and I humble myself under your mighty hand. Please change me from the inside out. Whatever, you don't have to have a perfect prayer, but that's the essence of it. Maybe you're doing some business with the Lord and just rededicating yourself to Him and the simple way that He's asked us to approach life. And Lord, for this precious congregation that does serve in so many beautiful ways, many servants around this place that do what they do for your glory, I thank you for them. I pray you'd bless them and encourage them knowing that what they do for the Lord is never in vain. May you bless them, keep them, strengthen them, let your face, your beautiful face, shine upon them and give them shalom, give them peace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The front's gonna be open, uh, especially at the end of this song, for prayer. If you need prayer, come on up. If you made a decision for the Lord, come on up at the end of this song. There'll be people waiting to pray for you. Okay, don't leave without being prayed for if you need it. Let's stand together and sing this last song.